You know what foods work for you. You know what foods don't. You know what's worth it for you and not worth it, which is highly individualized. And you get to take what you've learned and create the perfect, sustainable, long-term diet for you such that you never need to do another diet ever again, even the Whole30. Like the whole point is that I never want you to have to do a Whole30 again because you've learned so much from the experience that you feel so empowered to trust yourself to make the right decisions for you. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. One of the principles that I've believed for a long time with regard to growth is that if you're trying to establish a new rhythm, a new routine, a new habit, if you're trying to get out of a funk as a leader and as a person, then you always have to start with massive action. And I call that massive action a jolt, right? You need to have a way to jolt yourself into a new rhythm, into a new routine, and into a new habit pattern. And once you accomplish that jolt, then you have the foundation and the framework necessary to not just live a lifestyle of jolts, but rather to establish a more sustainable pattern for living and practicing healthy growth. And I share that with you today because today we get to talk with Melissa Urban. Now, Melissa is the founder of something you've probably heard of before, Whole30. Whole30 is not a diet. It's not a detox. It's a food reset. And really, it's based on the idea that if you want to establish healthy habits with regard to your eating, then you should start with a 30-day jolt, essentially, that puts you back into a place where you can figure out what the right rhythms and routines and habits are for you. And what's so cool is that food is so often a gateway towards transformation and growth in every other area of your life. We cover so many topics in this episode from health healthy boundaries, to healthy eating, to practicing moderation, to perfectionism. And then we really get into the leadership side of what it looked like to build Whole30 as a business and everything that Melissa is currently learning as the leader of this movement and this multi-million dollar organization. I learned so much from this conversation and I really just appreciate Melissa's energy and attitude. But I think one of the things that I most appreciate is just the fact that she is a product of of the product. She's lived this before she decided to start teaching this. And I think that that is often the most powerful posture to speak from. And so to get into this conversation, I wanted to share kind of one of the Genesis stories associated with Whole30, which started with a sleeve of Thin Mints. For people who haven't heard of Whole30, you can think of it like a reset for your health habits and relationship with food. So we're not a weight loss diet. It's not a quick fix or a detox or a cleanse. It's a true reset to help you identify food sensitivities and, like I said, address your habits and emotional relationship with food. And the program started back in 2009 just as a two-person self-experiment. My co-founder and I were sitting around after a really difficult Olympic lifting session. I was very into CrossFit at the time, very into my performance and recovery. And we were eating our like post-workout meal, which I think it had I had like a sandwich but I definitely was eating thin mints like right out of the sleeve because I had just exercised and I had earned them. And so we were kind of talking about like I wonder what would happen if we 
kind of cleaned up our diet that last like 20%, just a little bit of like junk food and stuff. And what if we took out foods that may be inflammatory in the body or having a negative kind of effect on our digestion or our inflammation? And I was like eating Thin Mints going like, yeah, that sounds good. You know, um, I would do that for like 30 days in a row, like really kind of strict by the books. When do you want to start? And my co-founder looked at me dead in the eye and said, how about right now? And I am a Gretchen Rubin upholder. I'm an Enneagram type eight. I'm a former (laughs) drug addict. So like I'm either on or off. And he said, how about right now? And I was like, yep. So I handed my Thin Mints off to my friend, Zach, sitting right next to me. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And that was really the start of the very first Whole30 in April, 2009. That's amazing. I yeah. love that. Boy, you're not kidding whenever you say you're a go-getter. It takes a lot of willpower yeah. to hand off a sleeve of Thin Mints. So that's amazing. So yeah. walk us through a little bit of what your initial experience was like and what were the initial benefits that you experienced, Melissa? Yeah. So the Whole30 is based on the framework of an elimination diet, which is still, according to many healthcare providers, the gold standard in identifying food sensitivities. And so what you do for 30 days is you eliminate foods that in the case of Whole30, our clinical experience and the research have shown are commonly problematic to varying degrees. Our research had shown they might be inflammatory, they could impact gut health, they could impact blood sugar regulation, and certainly cravings in your emotional relationship with food. So for 30 days, I took a bunch of foods out of my diet, all forms of added sugar, alcohol, grains, so everything like wheat and rye and barley and rice and corn. I ate no legumes, so no dairy, uh, no soy, no beans, no peas, and then I took out all forms of dairy. So I was eating like meat, veggies, you know, fruit, eggs, seafood, like all these real kind of whole unprocessed foods for 30 days. And I expected or hoped that my performance in the gym would improve and that my recovery would improve. But I started to experience these completely unexpected benefits. I had already, I was already eating well. I already felt like I was like a very healthy person, but my energy skyrocketed and stayed stable all day long. No more 2 p.m. head on desk needing like a little fix of caffeine or sugar. My digestion smoothed out tremendously. My sleep, I was sleeping better than I had ever slept in my life, which was, mm-hmm. I think, a, a very unexpected benefit. My mood was better. And it helped me identify all of the ways that I was using food in a dysfunctional fashion. I was using food to reward or punish myself, to self-soothe, to show myself love. I didn't really have many other coping mechanisms for stress other than food or drink at that time. And my first Whole30 really showed me that I didn't have anything else to lean on. And it forced me to identify other ways to cope with stress. So it was a profoundly impactful experience for me. And that's really why I decided to share about it on my little CrossFit training blog. Yeah. And you already hit on it a little bit, but one of the things that I've kind of heard you talk about a lot in other interviews that you've done and, and read, even some of the things that you've written is just the idea that you talk a lot about uh, the emotional relationship we have with food. Can you describe a little bit about what that is and how that plays out in something like what you're talking about with Whole30, Melissa? Oh yeah. I mean, there's an entire chapter in my first book all about our emotional relationship with food and sort of like the brain on food because a lot of what we think is just a lack of willpower or a lack of dedication is really like biological, right? So you think about 
evolutionarily how we are hardwired to appreciate salt and fat and sweet and that those kind of tastes really served us in an in a, a sort of an ancient world when we had to forage and you know find our own food and the taste of sweet meant calories which meant survival and now you fast forward to today's modern world where we have food scientists that are creating these foods that are super normally stimulating. They are saltier, fattier, sweeter than we could ever find in nature. And even though we know that they're fake, the body still loves them and prefers them because of those ancient signals. And now you make those foods more calorie dense and nutrient poor, which makes them easy to overconsume. The fiber is stripped out, the water, the micronutrition. And now all of a sudden we're left with these food with no breaks, right? So we start eating and we can't stop eating them. And then when you add stress, especially the kind of stress we're under in today's modern world, we're not being chased by a man-eating tiger. We're under financial stress and physiological stress from lack of sleep or micronutrition and emotional stress. All of these stressors that the brain kind of registers as like basically the same as being chased by a tiger and that stress leads us to want fast energy to escape that stressor in the form of sugar or salt or fat. And it's like, I almost want to be like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault that you have this emotional attachment to food. It's not this fault, your fault that you overconsume, And then the guilt and the shame that that brings and the isolation and the stress that that causes leads you to overconsume more. It's not your fault that it's been marketed to us, right? Have a bad day, go grab that glass of wine, break up with your boyfriend, grab a pint of Ben and Jerry's. Like food is the most socially acceptable numbing tool there is. It is widely available. We all need to eat to survive. So it's not like we can just give it up. And the current cycle that we're in really sets us up to fail. And that's what I've learned learned over the last like 11 years of research. But during my first whole 30, all I learned was, oh my gosh, I lean on food and drink super hard for basically any emotion that I don't want to sit in. And now I need to find something else. I like that you use the word acceptable too, because that's what I've found myself just in preparing for this conversation with you. I've started to reevaluate the things that I've just accepted, right? Like, and I've just accepted like, oh, it's, it's okay to celebrate big things by eating things that make you feel terrible the next day. And it's like, I've never even questioned that, but it's kind of like we have to rework some of these things that we've believed in all the time. Is that fair to say? I think that's really fair to say. You know, I get people all the time on Whole30 who are like, I'm going to my grandma's birthday party. How do I not eat the cake? And I was like, where did this like idea of celebration and food and drink become so entwined that you feel like you can't celebrate without that thing? Can yeah. you go to the wedding and cheers with like water, sparkling water in your glass instead of champagne? You can. You absolutely can. And like, it doesn't make a lick of difference to the bride and groom or like the family having the celebration what's on your plate or what's in your glass, but because it is so woven into our subconscious, because it's marketed to us, and because us changing our behavior, just that very act of saying no thank you makes other people get so defensive and so reactive. And the peer pressure around food and drink is so extreme, it can be really hard to even think to question those habits that we have. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I was so fascinated to talk uh, to you 
today was because I, I feel like everything that y'all do is kind of like change management in a, in, in a way. It's like we're helping people make a change. And I was reading in the intro of y'all's, uh, I think it was the cookbook, and it was quoting potentially one of your earlier books. But this quote was in the beginning of it. It says, it's not hard. Don't you dare tell us this is hard. Quitting heroin is hard. Uh, beating cancer is hard. Drinking your coffee black, that's not hard. <laughs> and uh, I read that. I was like, dang, that's so good. And then I asked the question, okay, but why is it so hard? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, and you go on later in the intro to say, okay. And at the same time, it's not quitting heroin, but it's also really difficult. So can you explain yeah. that duality and, and why that specific line you think has resonated with people so much? Because people talk about that all the time. I know that's like the most famous line of the whole 30. And it's the one I wrote back in 2009. Like I have quit heroin. I know how hard that is. I now have birth to baby. And, you know, our voice has certainly changed throughout the years. Back in 2009, when I wrote that, I was heavily involved in the CrossFit community. That Those were kind of the main customers of whole 30. They responded very well to this tough love, like do it or don't, right? Like get, you know, either you're in or you're out. And, and so now that our community is far broader and far more diverse. Our tone has certainly changed. Our voice has changed. And, and I'm more gentle with that language, but I still want to remind people that you have done hard things in this lifetime and that this 30-day commitment to you know, really radically create self-awareness around your habits and your emotional relationship with food, find other ways to cope, find other healthy habits, reconnect with your body and with your food that is a, a commitment that you are worth. Like it is the only body that you have in this lifetime and you are worthy of this commitment. And I know that you can do hard things and we are going to support you every step of the way because I know that this is going to be hard. But that language I think has really helped people feel empowered and to remind them that like, yeah, I am worth this and it is going to be hard, but getting to the other end of the whole 30, which is like about food, but it's not really about food as you already alluded to, mm. is such an incredibly powerful experience. And that will spill over into every single area of your life as we have observed for the last 11 years. So if, if it's not really about food and food is kind of this gateway, what for you as the founder of this thing, what is it really about? I mean, I think in, in large part, it's about empowerment and it's about trust. Mm. We and when I say we, I mean particularly women have been targeted and marketed to by the diet industry that we can't trust ourselves. We can't trust the signals our body is sending us. We can't trust our worth or our value unless we're being seen and um, appreciated under most likely the male gaze. We need to make ourselves smaller. We need to be like less. This is the message that that the patriarchy has been sending us for decades, at least as long as you know I've been growing up. And so we've disconnected from our bodies. And when our body says, hey, I'm hungry, we're like, nope, we're on a diet. And when our body says we're full, we can't trust it because of the kinds of foods that we're eating. And we don't necessarily feel empowered because we're constantly being told by the diet industry that if we just look to this guru, this next diet, this next weight loss fad, like that's going to fix it all for us. And the whole 30 is really the antithesis of that. It's every dietitian saying, you know, there is no one size fits all. You have to do what works for you. And people go, cool, that makes a lot of sense. How do I figure out what works for me? And whole 30 is really the answer to how. It is a 30-day self-experiment designed to put your food freedom back into your hands such that at the end of the experience, 
You know what foods work for you. You know what foods don't. You know what's worth it for you and not worth it, which is highly individualized. And you get to take what you've learned and create the perfect, sustainable, long-term diet for you such that you never need to do another diet ever again, even the Whole30. Like the whole point is that I never want you to have to do a Whole30 again because you've learned so much from the experience that you feel so empowered to trust yourself to make the right decisions for you. Mm. I'm so fascinated by your perspective in this just because I feel like probably you get a front row seat to people experiencing transformation. And now you've just, I mean, you'll have millions of case studies of, of people changing their life by simply changing their food habits for 30 days. I would love to know just from kind of your seat on the bus where you get to see all these people engaging in this transformation, is there typically something that serves as a tipping point that initiates the change, right? That they they either have like an I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired moment or what is the thing that serves as the kicking off point for radical life-changing transformation? I usually find that so most people when they undertake a dietary intervention, they do it because they're in crisis, right? They're, they have had a heart attack. Their doctor diagnoses them with prediabetes. They get put on a medication and they're like, okay, now I'm going to change my diet. What I see the most about Whole30 is that people get inspired by other people's positive experiences. We have grown largely through word of mouth and like only through word of mouth. For the first few years, we were in existence. We didn't have a book. We weren't getting national press, but because people were doing the Whole30, and had such an incredible experience and like wanted to tell everyone about it. It's kind of like going, you know, CrossFit or going to Burning Man. Like once you do a whole 30, you have to talk about it. <laughs> and people were so inspired by that. Like, wow, you know, look at what you've done. You look fantastic. You tell me you feel fantastic. There's like this new vitality about you. How can I get some of that? So I'm definitely seeing a lot of people driven by that positive experience of like, oh, there might be something different out there. And I wonder if this is going to help me achieve that. Gosh, I want to get into the whole business side of that as a marketing strategy, just having a killer product. But we're going to do that here in just a second. So I'm biting yeah. at the bit to get there because uh, that's so killer. That's powerful. With regard to that topic of change, what are the blockers that you see people most commonly experience? Or what are some of the blockers that you've experienced in, in kind of your journey, Melissa? Yeah. So I think people are definitely nervous about trying or scared about trying the Whole30 because all they've ever known are weight loss diets and those have never worked. So the idea of trying something else and like working so hard and putting your heart into it and having it ultimately like fail you again is really scary. So there's a lot of education we do around what the Whole30 is, the mindset shift that you need to make to come into the Whole30 because we're not a weight loss program, all of the things that differentiate us from maybe some of the other diets you've done before, and a refocus on what success looks like. So that can be really helpful. I also find people, they stumble because they don't necessarily think they're going to have or don't have the social support. So any kind of big habit change really is helped by social support and accountability. And when it comes to other healthy habits, if somebody was like, hey, I'm going to start meditating, you know, people are generally in your life like, oh, that sounds awesome. Like, good for you. Go for it. But when people say, I'm going to change my diet or I'm going to stop eating these foods for 30 days, that can, again, instill a lot of defensiveness, a lot of fear, a lot of almost sabotaging behaviors from the people that you would think would be encouraging of you wanting to improve your health. 
So, and that can create a lot of divisiveness. So there's like three chapters in my book, Food Freedom Forever, about how to talk to people about food because it can be divisive. And you want this whole 30 experience to be something that like really brings you closer together because you're doing it so you can show up and be more present for the people in your life. So I think that's a fear. I also hear people say like, I don't know how I would live without wine or chocolate or Mm. bread, right? They've become so emotionally attached to this food that the idea of giving it up feels like they're losing something really important. And I always want to address that. That is not like a silly fear or a small fear. That's a real fear that there's like a coping mechanism that you are not going to be able to have for 30 days. And we need to offer a lot of support around what you're going to do instead. So yeah, those are kind of three big ones I hear pretty often. Yeah. One one of the things that we talk about a lot within our coaching program, working with business leaders and not necessarily in the context of food, but I think it applies is just the idea of like a jolt. And I have really only experienced this anecdotally and and observed it in others anecdotally. So I don't necessarily have any evidence for this. I, I just have said, man, this is what's worked for me is like an initial jolt that takes outrageous energy, outrageous willpower to say, I'm going to do something radically different. But then you, the, the jolt is not the lifestyle. The jolt is what you need to get the habit going. Yeah. Uh, so I would love to know for you, like, is that some of the thought process behind the psychological side of Whole30? And then also, is there actually evidence for that? And have you experienced that as well? Yeah, I love that you say it's a jolt um, because that's that's really what it is. So ha- first of all, there is evidence. Habit research shows that big changes are actually easier. Big habits or big habit changes are easier for the brain to navigate than small ones in some circumstances. So when it comes to something like sugar, which is a potentially, I won't say addictive, but it is certainly a substance that people rely on. They lean on for energy physiologically. They lean on it for comfort to say, I'm going to eat no added sugar for 30 days and have that real bright line right there where it's like black or white, on or off, crystal clear, is far easier to wrap your brain around than I'm going to eat less sugar. Because what happens every time you go to the grocery store, you pick up a product and you go, okay, is this less sugar? Like less than what? Is two grams few enough? Like what if I add those two grams with the five grams that are already in my cart, but these come from natural sugars and these are added sugars. Am I eating less than yesterday or just like less in general? There's so much executive function that goes into this concept of moderation or less. And it's so dang hard for us to follow. Whereas if I just say, if there's sugar on the ingredient list, it's out for 30 days, don't eat it. You're like, boom, done. And now you have all that willpower left over for something else in your day. So there is science behind it. There's also science behind the idea of an elimination diet in that you want to go as big as possible, eliminate as many potentially problematic foods as possible at the same time to really see the best results. So if someone is, say, they're not sure what they're sensitive to, so they just eliminate gluten, but they keep eating dairy, they keep drinking alcohol, they keep eating soy, and there's stuff in their diet that they're still sensitive to, they might eliminate gluten for 30 days and go, I don't feel any better, this isn't working. So with the Whole30, we're asking that you eliminate a bunch of potentially problematic foods all at once and get to this like nice baseline, and then when you reintroduce them one at a time, it gives you this very detailed experience around, okay, I've eliminated, reintroduced, and now I can kind of really see a bigger picture. So I think there's a lot of science behind this idea of a jolt. And then if you add into that, the idea of the community around Whole30, Mm. the fact that we have this thriving, more than 4 million fan and follower, you know, strong community there for support, accountability, resources, motivation, cheerleading, tough love, 
And now you start to feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself. And that I think is really where the heart of Whole30 lies. Yeah, that that's somewhere that I feel like, uh, or that's an area where I feel like I'm in the middle of growing right now is I think previously for me personally, the areas where it was hardest to grow would be the areas that I decided I most wanted to grow in secret, right? Where it's like, I'm not, mm-hmm. there's no way I'm inviting people into this, because, you know, and, and the areas where it's like, I've got it, that's, those are the areas where it's like, come on, join me, community, all about it, right? Yeah. And, and it's like, wh- what you're saying is like the area that it community is actually most helpful is the area where you're most vulnerable. So can you explain a little bit about, um, or at least even just encourage people a little bit on the idea that it's like, man, if this is an area or even in other areas where you really struggle, that's the area where it's probably most worthwhile to get other people involved. Oh, I could not have said it better myself. I think when I think back to my drug addiction, so I've been in recovery for 21 mm. years, but I spent five years addicted. That's amazing. You know, and I, Congratulations. That's incredible. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I think that food and drugs are not necessarily that different. And especially if you're talking about wanting to make a change and feeling some sense of like shame around why you want to make the change. So it doesn't matter whether your goal is financial or for a health reason or some sort of addiction. Like if there's shame around where you are or what you have been doing, we just want to isolate. We don't want to share that with anyone because we have shame around it. Okay, so but can sh- I can I pause you right there real quick? Yeah. What what does that shame look like or sound like so people can identify it? Oh yeah. So as Brene Brown explains, guilt is I feel bad that I did something. Shame is I feel bad because I am that thing. Mm. So I feel shame when I attach my financial status to my worth as a person. I have done something wrong because I am in such a financial bind or I can't get out of debt or I can't grow my business. Like I am attaching that to myself as my worth and value. And now I feel shame around it. And because I feel that shame... I don't want to share that with anybody. I want that. I want to do that in, I want to keep that in the dark. I want to keep that a secret, but shame thrives in the dark. It grows in the dark. And the only way to combat it is to drag it out into the light. So whatever that area of growth is for you, whether it's financial or business or food or health or whatever, if it is something that you are like, you kind of don't want to share it with people, it almost seems like that's the one where you need to just like throw open the closet door and toss it on the table and be like, this is where I'm at. <laughs> because what you'll find always is that you are not alone. You're never alone. So I guarantee whatever that area of growth is for you, if you were to post it on Instagram to your friends and say like, man, I'm in this bind right now, or this is what I've been working on, or like, I'm I'm embarrassed, but like I'm stuck in this habit, I guarantee you would have 25 people right off the bat to be like, yeah, me too. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, I'm doing that right now. Yes, I'm, you know, it's so much of why I talk so much about my own life on Instagram because like you're never alone. And just even just realizing that is like you take one giant ladder pole out of that like dark hole of shame. Yeah. And I mean, I can honestly say I feel like for me as a consumer now of your content, I trust you more when you share the fact that you've overcome an addiction and that you've 
practiced whole 30, but you're not, I mean, you're not whole 365. You do it as a reset as it should be. And then I listen to something where you're like, oh yeah. And I had a cheeseburger and French fries and I don't, I rarely drink wine, but I had a glass of wine because it was after a big hike in Montana. I was like, oh my gosh, thank God. She had a glass of wine. I was like, (laughs) I can trust this girl now, but it's like, I, and, and we'll get more into the leadership side of things as well, but it's, it's almost like that, that vulnerability is where you're able to create real lasting connection. Yes. The only reason I started talking about my recovery publicly back in 2010 was because there, 2009, there's a lot of recovery like language and philosophy built into the whole 30 completely un subconsciously. I did not know I was building it in, but like it's, it's how I think it's how I write. And so I would be at seminars giving whole 30, you know, talks and people would come up and they'd go, I am in Alcoholics Anonymous. And like, I'm just curious if you have any experience with that. Cause like it was reflected in what I was sharing. And what I realized if, is that if I didn't talk about my recovery, people were going to look at me and I have thin privilege. I am fit. I've never been overweight in my life. And they would go, she has no idea what it's like to be mm-hmm. all consumed with food the way that I am. She doesn't know what it's like to feel out of control. And like, I do actually. And that's why I started sharing about my addiction recovery because I was like, I know exactly what it feels like and drugs and food are not that different. And let me tell you about the cycle that I was stuck in so that you can hear more of like how I got out as an inspiration for maybe how you can come to the Whole30 and experience the same similar kind of transformation. Mm. I was going to save this to kind of the leadership portion of the conversation, but I think it really applies here. So let's just go for it. You, you've, yeah. I've heard you allude to the fact that you kind of have some criteria or maybe even some rules for yourself about like what you share with whom. And, uh, and the fact that it's not just this like wide open transparency with your entire Instagram audience about your entire life. So I'd love to know a little bit about what are those kind of criteria that mental framework you have and, and why is that important for you as a person and as a leader, Melissa? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have very strong boundaries in all areas of my life, but especially around what I share publicly, I have over 300,000 Instagram followers. So that's like a large audience and people by human nature, people will take as much as you're willing to give them, right? They would, they have asked me every question you could imagine under the book. And I never fault them for asking no matter how deeply personal or inappropriate, because like, it's not your job to guess my boundaries. It's my job to hold them. So I lean on, again, it's like Brene Brown, who's just wonderful. She's got this kind of guideline that says I share what's the difference between personal and intimate. So I share things that are personal. I will tell you what I ate for lunch. I will talk about my relationship. I will share difficult experiences that I've gone through in my life after I have fully processed them myself. I've talked them through with my husband, with my family, with my therapist. I feel like I'm in a good grounded place with them. And after I've been able to kind of find these like moments of reflection, then I will share. So that's the kind of personal side of it. I don't share the things that are intimate. So it's, I don't talk about my son. Um, On social media, you will never see his face. You will never hear his name. He is just for me. I won't talk about my relationship if we're like in the middle of stuff, either good or bad. We got married and I didn't tell anyone for like six weeks Mm -hmm. um, because that was just for us. And everyone in, you know, all 13 people at my wedding were like on board with no social media posts. (laughs) Um, You know, so when people look at my Instagram, they're like, oh, but you talked about that one time you got chlamydia. And I'm like, yeah, I sure did. I'm fine to talk about those things, but 
after it's been like fully processed and absorbed and like people in my family who need to know, know, and like, then I'm comfortable talking about it, but not in the moment and definitely not things that I feel like I need to keep just like super close to my heart. Gosh, that's so good. I I had a pastor that used to always say, be authentic with everyone and transparent with a precious few. And Mm -hmm. uh, I honestly, you walking through what you just walked through I feel like is such a good framework. And and it's not like everyone has to use that framework, but what I'm taking away from it is it's a pretty good idea to have a framework and it's yes. a pretty good idea to know what your boundaries are. Have you been naturally gifted at establishing and holding boundaries or is that something that's a learned skill for you? It was definitely a learned skill. I did not have boundaries modeled for me growing up. I didn't I didn't set them myself growing up, and it wasn't until I entered into recovery for the second time, so after my relapse, that I was like, "Oh, if I don't put some guardrails around my recovery, I'm not going to make it out again." Mm-hmm. And that was when I really started setting boundaries with other people in my life, like, you know, "Oh, can, do you mind if we smoke pot around?" Yeah, actually, do you mind? Please don't do that around me. Or like, "Please go outside." Or if you you are welcome to, but I'm going to leave, right? So I started setting boundaries in my recovery. And then when I founded Whole30, it was a very natural progression to start talking to people about boundaries around food and drink because you say no a lot on the Whole30, right? Do you want a slice of pizza? Do you want a bagel in the office break room? Do you want a beer at happy hour? And like people have to learn how to say no. So I started, I had to think about how I said no in those situations. And because of my personality, I don't have a hard time saying no. I'm not a people pleaser by nature. Like it came very easily to me, but I had to think about how to translate that skill to someone else who maybe was more of an obliger and maybe did have more of a struggle saying no. So it's definitely been something I've practiced a lot over the last 11 years. What is the mindset shift that is required, do you think, to go from being a person that maybe boundaries are established by the people you're with or by what makes others happy versus boundaries that are best for you? I think the idea of boundaries are not, boundaries not selfish. They're not selfish. Mm -hmm. Um, Self-care is not selfish. As women, especially, we are taught to put everyone else's needs ahead of ours as moms, especially. Oh my goodness. I could talk about it from a mom perspective of like, everyone comes first before you, every household task gets done before you get to rest. The kids come before you, the spouse comes before you. And so we have boundaries, even before they come out of our mouth, they just feel harsh and they feel mean and they feel punitive and they feel selfish. And it's like a real mindset shift to realize that like boundaries are what makes the relationship better. It's right. It's the Prentice Hempel said, it's the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really important shift to realize that boundaries are necessary for healthy relationships. And if we don't set them, then we're going to be burned out. We're going to be resentful and we're not going to have anything to give other people, never mind ourselves. Gosh, yes. Uh, Okay, so then tying the two topics that we've talked about, uh, going from like the jolt into maybe more moderation and this idea of boundaries, I am a little bit of an extreme personality type and the people we work with are a little bit of an extreme personality type. And I think maybe this is human nature that it's like, I would rather say zero alcohol or zero red meat or zero carbs because it's way easier to stick to that than some gray area like, oh, I only do it whenever I feel like it's right for me. That's really hard to stick to because it's like, oh, well, a beer is right every night, right? It's like, why is it not right? I can always justify. And so- Ma'am, what what advice do you have for people building the skill of moderation? Because I think that is really, really challenging, but also at the crux of what it means to truly live freely. It is hard. So people, you're right. People are 
generally by default either abstainers or moderators. One of those two personality profiles kind of comes more naturally to them. So Mm. abstainers like you and I just find it easier to go out of sight, out of mind. I'm just never going to do it or I'm always going to do it. Whereas moderators are like, oh, if, if I take it away completely, I feel so restricted and I feel so like... Like I I want it even more, but if I can just have a little bit at a time, I'm super happy. And I do think that there's value in learning how to flex your preference to be either abstainer in the moment when when it serves you or learn how to moderate. As an abstainer myself, I've gotten a lot better at moderating. I would say I'm like pretty good at it now. And it's because, how do I put this? I moderate from an abstainer's viewpoint. So moderation isn't like, I guess people think about it like this super airy concept where it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to eat as much as I want or only a little, but what does a little mean? And in my mind, I'm thinking about it like, is it worth it? How much will be worth it? How often will be worth it? You know, in what context is it worth it? And so whether I'm talking about food or drink or a behavior like skipping the gym, it's like, is it worth it in this moment? And like, Mm -hmm. if the answer is yes, it's worth it. Yeah. Because your sister's here and you haven't seen her and whatever. And she wants to hike instead of go to the gym. Yeah. It's totally worth it. That's sort of like a moderation for me. That's how I moderate or this idea of, you know, oh, I like ice cream, but I only want like three bites, three bites. And I'm totally satisfied with ice cream. I guess you could think of that as moderation, but I more think about it just from a perspective of like, at what bite is it no longer worth it? And that's when I stop because if it's not, (laughs) it's not. So I think I've just kind of shifted my mindset away from moderation and just into like whatever, I guess, framework works for me. I'm still an abstainer, but I only abstain when it no longer serves me, if that makes sense. Yeah. There was one time it was specifically with alcohol that I'd gotten off the phone with a a friend of mine that had just done 30 days of no alcohol or something like that. And he was just talking about how he and his wife, it was the right decision for them. And they made a really healthy decision. And he just said, it was so great. We're just going to keep doing it. Right. Which is so much of what I, I think people experience with whole 32 is like, oh my gosh, it was so amazing. Why would I not just continue on? Right. And yeah. so I was listening to this on the phone and much like what you were talking about a whole 30, it was maybe an example of me not having great boundaries myself. I was like, well, they did that. I have to do that. Right. I can't not do that. And so I was just like, I'm not going to do it at all. And was all excited. And then like, the next counselor meeting I had, I think it was the next day, and I was telling my counselor about this, and he just looked at me and kind of let my and let me run out of steam a little bit, and he said, man, Alex, he said, I feel like you have a tendency to find safety in rules, and mm-hmm. he said, I would really like you to practice getting better at just being able to say, man, if I want to have a beer because I just finished a great hike in Alaska and I'm with friends, I can do that and that be healthy and not just have this rule that keeps you from living life. Um, yes. Do, do you feel like, have you experienced that? And do you have anything to add to that? Well, you literally just described the entire framework of the whole 30. Dang. I don't want <laughs> I you to do this. Why have I not you done did this it. yet? <laughs> But like, I don't want you to hold 365. I don't want you to because it's supposed to be a self-experiment, a learning tool. And if you eat by my rules forever, you're not learning about your own food freedom. What I want, and you're going to miss out on like that once a year, like mom's hermits or chocolate chip walnut cake or the beer after the hike in Alaska or like some of these truly special moments where like the food or the drink would add to that celebration in such an impactful way. So 
what we describe as food freedom or in life after your whole 30 always comes back to these two questions. Is it worth it? And do I want it? If you get done hiking in Alaska and that beer is worth it because man, what an incredible experience and the beer would really top it off for you, but you don't actually want it. Don't drink it. Mm. Like that's not actually additive. If you, you know, there was one, I tell a story in the book where it was my birthday. I rode my motorcycle to the food, the, my favorite gluten-free cupcake shop. I stood looking at all the cupcakes and I realized I didn't actually want one that day. And I just went home Mm. because I could like, I could celebrate my birthday without a cupcake and I didn't want it. And then there are other times where I will house like half a bag of tortilla chips with salsa because every single bite is like a hundred percent worth it. And I love it so much and I'm so excited about it. So there's flexibility if you change your mindset from like always or never or these rules to this idea of the only rule is if it's worth it and I want it, then I do it. Yeah. And I'm constantly asking myself that question with every bite, with every serving, every single you know context, it's always, is it worth it? Do I want it? Um, and I'm not kind of automatically saying yes, because last time it was. That's the framework that I have found works for me the best. And I would assume because it's a practice, it's not like you have this outrageous decision fatigue associated with, man, every food that's in front of me, I'm just struggling over, is it worth it? And do I, what is that? I mean, you've probably gotten pretty habitual about it, correct? I absolutely have. It might feel like that in the beginning. It might feel a lot in the beginning, like you're paying a lot of attention to food. Mm. And like, I get it, right? If you think about any new habit, like driving or exercising, you focus so much on like the granular aspect of what you're doing because you're learning it. But those decisions become so much faster and so much more automatic with time. And you have so much more history now to say, is it worth it? And you can think back to the 38 times you've been faced with that same decision of the glass of wine with dinner. And you can go, oh, the last 38 times it hasn't been worth it. So like there's a good chance it won't. Or the last five times I said, yes, it wasn't worth it. And I'm just going to remind myself of that right now. So it gets way easier. Mm. Well, and then it also seems like if you are ever in a position where you can't envision not having that thing, you you probably need to not have that thing, right? I know. I know. I've said that a lot. That one thing that you feel like you can't give up, that's the that's the relationship I would question first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Said with so much love. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Final question kind of on this personal side, unless there's anything else you want to add on this. I feel like perfectionism can be a really easy place to go with this. Like, oh, I can't make any mistakes. I've got this plan that I'm following. I can't screw up. I can't deviate. And I can also see how that could actually be really toxic to the progress you actually want to make. So can you describe what a healthy relationship is with regard to your standards and excellence and not striving for something that isn't actually real? Yes. It's a fine line on the Whole30 because with any elimination diet, you really do have to follow it 100% to see the best results. So If you think you're sensitive to dairy and you eliminate it mostly five days out of the week or most days, but like with the occasional bowl of ice cream, you're not ever going to know what your life is like without dairy. So the rules of an elimination diet, any elimination are very like you have to follow it 100% by the books for 30 straight days. That's your learning experience. What we overlay on top of that is that there's no such thing as a perfect whole 30 and your only job is to put Whole30 food in your mouth. That's it. 
That's it. It can be as simple as, is this Whole30? Yes, then I eat it. Is this not? No, then I won't. I don't want you to worry about having the perfectly balanced meal plate or eating the rainbow with vegetables. If you get stuck at an airport and all you have are like two compatible Lara bars, go ahead and eat them. Cool. Don't worry about if you're eating too many grapes or too much nut butter or eating too much in general. Like your only job for 30 days is to put Whole30 food in your mouth. So we really talk a lot about sort of letting good enough be good enough, right? Mm. There are so many nights where I'm just microwaving Applegate hot dogs with leftover sweet potatoes on a plastic (laughs) dinosaur plate for my kid. And like, we're pumped. That's fine. That works. And Applegate Um, didn't pay you to say that, correct? You're not getting royalties. No, No, I I should have. I wish. They are one of our Whole30 approved partners. But no, (laughs) they're just a product that we know and we love and they're so easy. But like, I don't want anyone thinking that they can't do a Whole30 if they can't buy organic and grass-fed, or if they're not only shopping at you know their local farmer's market, or if they're not making Instagram-worthy meals at like every single you know setting, like table setting, that that's not what the Whole30 is about at all. Yeah. Okay. So once you're done with the initial jolt and you're kind of more in the flow of like, okay, this is now a lifestyle for me and it may not be I've eliminated everything. I've just found what's right for me, my body, my priorities, my values, all of that. What is your standard look like then with regard to deviating from your plan and, and perfectionism and all of that, Melissa? Yeah. So food, everyone's food freedom looks completely different because mm. what's worth it for you may not be di- worth it for me, right? Like I mentioned, I'm not an ice cream person, so I rarely eat it. It's like just sort of <laughs> not part of my, I don't miss it. Like That's pizza. one area where I find you completely unrelatable. I can't yeah. <laughs> relate to your not, like I'm obsessed with ice cream. But I might <laughs> eat more Justin's peanut butter cups than you. There's like okay. a really good chance. There you go. Um, so what I have done is I just, most of my meals are still Whole30 compatible because the, it's so easy for me and I know it helps me feel my best, but I eat oatmeal every single day. I eat rice every day. I love hot buttered popcorn sprinkled with peanut M&Ms. I love Justin's peanut butter cups. There's a burger joint here in Salt Lake City where I will go like full cheese, full bun, gluten and all. Like I normally don't eat gluten, but this bun is 100% worth it. So it it looks exactly like what we describe in Food Freedom Forever, which is like the foundation of your diet, you know, serves you. And if it's worth it and you want it, you include it. And I know how much I can get away with and still feel exactly as good as I want to feel. And like, that's my sweet spot. Mm. Okay. As a transition question, one of the things that we talk about a lot is like, man, if you want to get your business in order, start by getting yourself in order. Because if you, man, if you can do that, it's amazing how, how easy business becomes because I, I'm a pretty hard entity to manage. And if I can figure out how to manage that, the organization is pretty easy. And so, uh, can you speak a little bit to how doing this in your own life, everything from the addiction recovery work and everything that you've done now just practicing Whole30 and practicing healthy boundaries yourself has equipped you to be a more effective business leader? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is what we talk about when we say that like it starts with food. I feel like our relationship with food is so foundational. And when that feels out of order, it can make the rest of our life feel chaotic. And it impacts every other area of our life. It impacts energy and sleep and mood and focus and motivation. So, you know, going through my recovery and the Whole30 and feeling like now I have a really solid relationship with food and a very solid foundation for like my sleep is excellent, my energy is great, my motivation is great, focus, attention span. Obviously, that means that I can show up for other areas of my life, including my business, 
more effectively. And I think learning very early on that I had to set boundaries around my work time, you know, when I went from a nine to five job to working for myself, I entered probably a year of feeling like I had to be available for anyone who needed me for anything 24 seven. And this is like 2010, Melissa answering Facebook comments at 10 PM, right? Cause I felt like I had to, because I was hustling. And you had to hustle 24-7. And like, if I'm, you know, sleeping, someone else is working and all of that BS that is fed to us in like entrepreneur culture. And I quickly realized that I was of no good to anyone else talking about how to live a healthy lifestyle if I was completely burnt out. And I started setting hard and fast boundaries around things like my morning routine, my nighttime routine, my relationship with like my phone and email. And I think after that, that was probably the biggest and best decision I could make for the growth of the business because Every time I show up for work now, I'm pouring from like a pretty full cup. Gosh, that's so powerful because I think that drifts into how you treat your team members as well. It's like, like it doesn't make any sense to treat your team differently than you treat yourself, right? And you can't sustainably yeah. do that because they watch how you treat yourself, I think. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. All of that culture comes from the top down. So you can talk about how much you value family time and work-life boundaries. But if I'm always the one sending Slack messages at 11 PM, when something comes to mind, yeah, of course my team would absorb that and feel the pressure to do the same. So yes, that culture starts from the top down. If you want to build a robust, resilient, loyal team. Obviously, you have to take really good care of them. And and I think that, you know, a lot of people probably come from a culture where boundaries at work weren't a thing. They weren't modeled or they weren't respected and maybe came from like a tox- more toxic work environment. So, to, so to show up in an environment where boundaries are modeled, boundaries are respected, time off is like actually given and encouraged and like in some cases forced, right? Like, no, 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 you're off today. We'll talk about this tomorrow. I think that can be a real refreshing change for people. Yeah. Yeah. I so agree with that. So going back to when you started the business in 2010 or no, you started in 2009, went full-time in 2010, correct? Yeah. Did that transition to full-time feel like a feel risky to you or was the business already up and running in such a way that you you felt like you had a degree of comfort and stability in that? What did it look like? It looked like both. It was definitely <laughs> risky. Yeah, I remember right. my mom being like, you're quitting the highest paying job you've ever had and you won't have health insurance, right? And I was like, no, I won't. But like, don't worry, we've got this. Um, <laughs> Thanks, so I had mom. Been, I know my mom, right? Um, I had been working full time for an insurance company. I ran a team of like business analysts and operations assistants. I ran business ops for oh, 10 years. But then for the last like two years of it, had been sort of hustling on the side with like my CrossFit training blog, traveling to do CrossFit kettlebell certifications. Did you own an affiliate? Did you own an affiliate as well? My goodness. Yeah. So you, you were yeah. just a very busy individual. Were you healthy at that stage? Like, do you, would you describe kind of your rhythms as healthy? It was ish. It was, he- I mean, everyone else, I was like the healthiest person anyone at my office knew, but there was a lot of perfectionism. There was a lot of like more is better. There was certainly a lot of like punishment around still around exercise and food. Um, I ate, you know, I paid attention to what I ate. I made sure I ate enough calories. I worked out healthy. I, I paid attention to recovery, but like there were definitely some aspects of it that were still not as certainly not as healthy as they are now, but like I did okay. I did okay. And it wasn't, it wasn't until 2010 where I was like, okay, I've been traveling three weekends out of every month after my nine to five to go talk to these CrossFit gyms about whole 30, driving on a Friday night, seminar on Saturday, driving back on Sunday, going back into my full-time job, writing blog posts at night. Like 
I either need to jump and see if I can make this whole 30 thing work because it has built up momentum at this point, or I'm just going to kind of let it drift off and do its own thing because I can't do both things well. And that was kind of when my co-founder and I decided to like quit our full-time jobs and do whole 30. So it, it was risky, but we had also built up some momentum. So we weren't like starting from scratch. Man, I, I, uh, I've talked to so many founders uh, that created something that feels relatively unique or didn't really exist previously that did kind of followed a very similar strategy to y'all and that you kind of were catapulted by the momentum that was already associated with CrossFit. And what's so cool is now y'all are so far beyond what CrossFit is and you're very distinguished from that community, although they still kind of subscribe yeah. to Whole30 practices and all of that. But can you speak to the value of kind of saying, okay, that's a that's a group of people that probably would align with our values that we're going to leverage the fact that they're already gathering to grow this brand? Yeah. I mean, I would love to say that that was my strategy all along, but it was kind <laughs> of just like a, a happy coincidence. Because um, with any entrepreneur growth, there definitely is some aspect of like right place, right time. I was super heavily involved in CrossFit. I had given a lot. I wasn't getting paid to do these kettlebell certs or to write for the CrossFit journal or to participate in the community or have my own blog or run my own affiliate. Like the affiliate was definitely a part-time thing. I only coached maybe 10 clients, but it was something I just did for fun. But the CrossFit community back before Facebook and Instagram were incredibly well connected. They had the CrossFit forum, which was a really lively message board. And there was like this absence of nutrition guidance in CrossFit land when Rob Wolf, who used to lead their CrossFit nutrition certs, left the program. So it was just this like, it was this kind of happenstance where like we, I'd given a lot to that community and was really well known and entrenched with them. The Whole30 was a great program that worked really, really well. And I spoke their language. So I had this like messaging and this voice that they really related to because I was one of them. And so the first time we went to talk at a CrossFit gym, it was a friend of ours who owned a gym in Virginia who called and was like, would you drive down here one weekend to talk about the Whole30? Like, I think our members would really love it. I'd love to run them through a Whole30 program and see how it helped their performance and recovery. And we were like, yeah, we would drive down. And we went down and talked to maybe 25 people for free. And then another gym called. And they were like, hey, I saw what you did at Siddharth's gym. Would you come do that for our gym? And like, that's how it started. So yeah, it was, you know, it helped to be entrenched with that community for sure. It helped that I was one of them and spoke their language. And it also helped that we were willing to just like hustle our butts off, and make it, you know, make it, take advantage of every opportunity we were given at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. And clearly because you had already experienced the results, you, you believed in the hustle. Like there, it sounds like there was just this sense of passionate purpose that was driving those early days through and through. Oh yeah. I mean, all of the marketing and strategy and affiliations in the world wouldn't have added up to where we are today if the program wasn't as good as it is. That's the thing, mm -hmm. right? You can have the flashiest messaging, you can have the best social media strategy, the best like, I don't know, marketer advertising campaigns. But like if the product isn't good, it's not going to go. It won't take off. And because the product is so good and because people who do the Whole30 have such incredible experiences and want to tell everybody they know, that's the foundation of our marketing. It's its word of mouth because the program really is good. Oh man, I, uh, gosh, there's that's that's the best marketing plan, right? Is just having a really freaking good product. So yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I have a I have a question for you on that. In that, 
it's kind of like how good is good enough to go public? Because, I mean, what y'all created is a pretty comprehensive plan, right? That maybe, I don't know, maybe you've iterated on it some, or maybe it's pretty true to what it was in its current form. But at what point did you get to the stage where you said, okay, this as a plan that people should follow for 30 days to reset their eating habits is correct? Like, when did you know and how did you know, okay, it's time to go public with this deal? I mean, I went public pretty early. If you call like my little urban gets diesel CrossFit training blog public, I had like, you know, (laughs) um, a couple, maybe a couple thousand readers a day, but I had had such a tremendous experience with it. And my co-founder had an equally transformative, but like different experience. His was a lot more physiological. Mine was much more emotional and habit related. And I remember talking to a friend of mine on the phone after probably like mid- Uh, end of May. And I was like, Hey, I had this awesome experience. We did this like 30 day thing. Do you think anyone would want to hear about it? And she was like, yeah, I think people would want to hear about it. So I was like, all right. So I wrote down what I had done on my little CrossFit training blog. And I said, would anyone want to try this? And like a few hundred people were like, yeah, I would give it a try. So I wrote up this really rudimentary set of rules, which was, they were a lot squishier than they are now. It didn't include any kind of reintroduction protocol. Like it was very bare bones. But even with that bare bones structure, at the end of those 30 days, I started to hear remarkably similar, equally transformative results. And that was when I was like, oh, we have something here. Like two people, okay, cool. That's like an N of two. But when 50 people come back and they're like, yeah, my energy rocked, my sleep improved, my digestion improved, my skin was glowing, my focus and perform, like my mood, my performance, all of these different things. And then we started hearing stories like, I don't have my RA symptoms anymore. I figured out what my like triggers are or migraines or asthma or allergies or eczema. Like people started associating their symptoms with the foods that they weren't reintroducing. And now they were able to streamline their diets in such a way that they can mitigate those symptoms that they've been living with. That was the moment where I was like, okay, you know, we created a website out of it. We wrote the rules and the rules continued to be slightly iterated upon. And of course we added more resources. I created a medical and RD advisory board, all of that jazz, but like we went public with it pretty early. And I think that was a smart move because we were able to get a lot of test subjects in the door to help us make the program even better. And by the way, this is, this is free. The whole 30 is, and has always been free. Yeah. So we gave all of this stuff away in exchange for getting some great, you know, results, helping us improve the program and like building that loyal community. Well, and, and it seems as though because of your experience and the initial experiences of other people, you're like, we have proof beyond a reasonable doubt that this will serve people. But then from there, the thing that made me so excited, I was literally on a run uh, on, on town, like here in Austin, whenever I was listening to your podcast with, I think it was Danica Patrick. And, and she asked you the question, she was like, okay, so did you have investors or were you self-funded? And I was like on pins and needles, like being like, oh, this is it. This is the, and you were like, oh no, entirely self-funded. I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And so it's like, you didn't go out and borrow a bunch of money to build a website. You just posted on a blog or on a forum. And it's like, so can you speak to the value of that scrappy start of like, we're not going to go in invest a ton of money on this thing before we grow it. We're going to let it grow at the pace of the cash that we can bring in. Has that been valuable to you as a business? I don't know. I mean, did I ever, did I think about any of these? Did I even know what an investor was or how to talk to an (laughs) investor in 2010? No, I did not. Um, And we've just been bootstrapped the whole time and we're still self-funded this to this day. How has that, I think it's been the most valuable because the whole 30 
is so mission driven. And we have always, I have always put the community ahead of anything else. So I have turned down big brand deals and partnership deals and Whole30 approved partner offerings because I didn't feel like they were right for the spirit of the community and the health of the community. And I doubt if we had investors early on that we would have, I would have been able to make those decisions. So for us, I think it was the right move. I also never wanted to own my own business, nor did I have aspirations for growing like a, you know, $10 billion business. Like that's not my, that's not what motivates me at all as a CEO. So for me, it's always just been about like, how can we help more people? How can we do that? Can I listen to you? And can we make a resource? Cool. Can I write a whole book for you? Yeah, I can do that. Can we create a section of the website? Do you want an SMS text message service? Yeah. Do you, oh, you want some salad dressings that you can take to like your mother-in-law's house? Yeah, we'll make those for you. Like that's just been how I've thought about it from the very beginning is like, uh, how can I help you, you know, do a whole 30 and how can I help more people do a whole 30? Man. That gets me so fired up because I think sometimes people coincide with a young person with that attitude and they say, oh, you would be a great leader of a nonprofit. And, and And I have nothing. Nonprofits are wonderful. And some people are called to run nonprofits. But it's like, well, great business should be just as rooted around serving people and helping helping people as nonprofit is. And and that's exactly what you're doing. You created something that helps and serves people. So. uh, did you ever get to a stage in the growing of this business where you kind of looked in the mirror and you were like, holy crap, I'm running a thing. Like, this is like a whole thing. Like, and I've got a team of people and executives and now this CEO title like really means something. And, and yeah. how do you deal with that? I mean, all the time. We had an offsite meeting, our first in-person meeting since 2019, right, with COVID. We just had them about a few weeks ago in Park City, here in Park City, Utah. And how big, I looked around, how big of a team is that? We have 17 full-time right now. But then we had a few other people come in who we work with really closely as contractors. But we, are, we already have three open positions posted wow. as we speak. So we've got about 20 people. And I looked around and we're talking about KPIs and budget and revenue. And I ha- was like basically having a panic attack. Like, oh my gosh, all, you know, all of these people's salaries depend on us and as, or- as an organization. I'm not a particularly, I'm not a profit driven CEO. So I'm like, oh, as long as we have enough money to like keep the lights on, I, you know, I, I'm fine with that. So there has been, there have been definitely moments like the first time I went into Chipotle and ordered a whole 30 salad bowl. That was like a big deal. There are moments where I step back and take a look at, where we are. And I'm just like floored because it's still, it's hard for me not to think of us as this like scrappy, you know, doing it yourself, word of mouth, little company. And I know that that's not where we are now, but I've been with it since the beginning. So I have to, I have to sometimes, or people on my team have to sometimes kick me out of that. Like, no, 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 we actually have some clout here. We we can do this. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Okay. How in the midst of the company transforming so rapidly, how do you ensure that you stay true to who you are and what your values are personally and both for the business as well since you built it? I know. We're kind of in the middle of doing that right now. It was about uh, two, maybe a year and a half ago that I realized that I didn't, I don't think I want to be like CEO anymore. I don't know if I want to be anymore. I am so invested in the day-to-day. I have been so invested in the day-to-day running of the business that I'm not doing the stuff that I add where I add value and the stuff that only I can do. It's like writing the books and doing the interviews and media and showing up for speaking engagements and like being the voice and like the North Star. I want to do all of that. And that's where I add value. 
But if I'm knee deep in budgets and KPIs and CPG, then like I can't. So I've started having conversations with my team about this. I have recently promoted someone to interim president and she's taking over the day to day for like a six month kind of trial run um, and kicking butt, by the way. The other thing is that I, you know, our team grew to the point where we needed KPIs. We needed a budget. We needed to look at profits. And I was like, I don't really care. I don't care about that stuff. <laughs> I'm not good at that. Um, I, it doesn't move me having a goal isn't going to like make me work any harder or be any more, you know, motivated. So the team needed that and I wasn't going to be the leader to do that. So I found someone who was, um, and she's doing great, but like, we're definitely in a transformation right now where eventually I would love to step back entirely from the day to day and like, just do the, you know, face stuff that I love so much. I have more books to write and more media interviews to give and more conversations like this. And like, let me do that and let her worry about like how we're making money. <laughs> that, uh, gosh, there's so much in that that's just gold. Have you read the book Rocket Fuel? I don't think so. I mean, you basically just described it. You literally just described it and what you talked about. So Rocket Fuel is based on the entrepreneurial operating system. EOS is what it's called. And it talks about how so many companies from, I, I know for a fact, Disney is one of them. Steve Jobs at Apple was one of them. And it goes through all of these brands of all sizes operate with the presence of a visionary leader. Yes. Who, uh, have you heard of this? And the visionary and the integrator. upstairs on my nightstand <laughs> because my president sent it to me and she's like, I need you to read this. And I haven't <laughs> read it yet. So don't, she, now she's going to call me out on it. Sorry, Erica, but it's on my nightstand. <laughs> yeah, you you have to read. It's so phenomenal. It's so, so, so yes. good. And and you'll read it. I, I've just got this feeling because we, we, uh, we work from this book a lot. We coach from this book a lot and we work with people on this book a lot. And everyone's experience is almost always the same. It's like, oh my gosh, I did not read this book. This book read me. Like it just mm -hmm. described who I am as the visionary leader of this company. But what I've seen is that the greatest blocker sometimes to truly working in a visionary integrator dynamic where it's like, I've got a COO or a president that manages the day-to-day -day of the business and I lead the business into the future the greatest blocker to the founder stepping into that visionary role can often be that they've had this disposition in their head of like, oh, I have to do everything because I, mm. you know, and like this business is mine. So therefore I have to do everything. And it's kind of an old school line of business where it's like, I, I have to be involved in all of it. And therefore I can't delegate this stuff. Was that a hard transition for you to make where it's like, no, the area where I'm best is also the thing that I enjoy most, which is being the face and working with the customers. And I don't enjoy KPIs. And that's not good or bad. That just is. Like, was that a hard yeah. transition? No, it was so easy. It was so easy <laughs> because, because I don't have attachment to the title. I don't have attachment to the jobs that I'm doing. I don't, I no longer have attachment to the fact that like this is my company because I specifically hired people who were better than me in their areas. So like I don't run social media anymore because I have a chief content officer who's 10 times better than me at that job. And I've been hiring like that all along. So I hire people who are better than me to run aspects of those that business, but there's nobody better than me at writing the books and being the face. Nobody, nobody mm. could do it but me. And that's where I value. And that's where I can generate revenue. And that's what I like. And all I want to do at this point with my son, who's eight years old and, you know, I recently remarried and like this business that's now 11 years old, like I want to do stuff I love and I want to feel really good about it. And I want to help as many people as I can. And if the way to do that is to let Erica Rossetti, who is goal driven, like, you know, KPI driven, mission driven, wants to turn this like thing into a rocket ship. If I can let her steer, then she gets what she wants. 
and I get what I want. It's like a <laughs> lovely arrangement, honestly. And like, as long as, you know, I'm like, don't bankrupt us and let us reach more and more people. And she's like, cool, game on. Mm. And so, no, it wasn't hard at all. We're both incredibly excited at this prospect. Yeah. Gosh. So I think one of the other challenges associated with stepping towards that and moving towards that is uh, you've clearly done the hard work of attracting and hiring and retaining outstanding people, really, really smart, uh, original thinkers, people that care deeply about your brand. I, I would love for you just to kind of take this question where you want to take it. What have you learned about attracting and hiring and retaining great people in the time that you've led this business, Melissa? Well, I did a lot of hiring in my nine to five job, a lot of hiring. And though it was hiring at sort of an assistant or operations level, I definitely learned early on to hire for talent and not skill. So I can teach anybody the skills of if, if you don't know how to use WordPress or you don't know how to use our QuickBooks system or whatever, I can teach you the skill, but I can't teach talent. So that's what I really look for is like, are you, you know, first and foremost, honestly, do you love the Whole30? If you don't love the Whole30 and believe in it, you're not going to be as effective on our team as somebody who does. So like, that's almost the very first thing that we look at is like, talk to me about your Whole30 experience. Even if you haven't done a Whole30 What's your experience of the community, being in the community, you know, being a, a part of it or looking at it from your perspective? I definitely like people who take ownership of their, you know, area. And I like people who have their own unique vision. I need people to have their own voice. Um, I talk to everybody that I hire about how if you let me, I will run you over. So I need you to claim ownership of your area of the business. And if I ask you, like, why are you doing it that way? always know that I'm approaching it from a point of curiosity and not like judgment or that I'm questioning your decision. So we have a lot of communication around like Enneagram styles and personality styles to make sure that we're all working effectively. And then we believe in taking really good care of our people every, you know, in every possible way from compensation to we just added healthcare and 401k to all of our team and we pay for healthcare 100%. We have mental health days, paid mental health days every single month that are mandatory, unlimited paid time off. I think we have one of the best family um, and maternal leave policies in the country. So, you know, we think about wanting to bring people in and like, I want them to want people to pry this job out of their cold, dead hands, as one of my employees say. <laughs> and so we just do everything in our power to make sure that they feel really just happy and empowered and that there's, you know, a future and progression for them here at Whole30. Mm. And I and hope we do that. Yeah, well, it, it sure sounds like it. And just the kind of looking at kind of some of y'all's team stuff and everything associated with that online too, it just, it sure seems like y'all are doing a wonderful job of creating a really thriving culture. Y'all are entirely virtual, is that correct? Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, we've always been 100% remote, yeah. So that's amazing. What have been the benefits of that and what have been the challenges of that? Well, it's funny, we had the conversation in like mid 2019 around like, should we create a home office? Like, should we because I'm based in Salt Lake City, like, should we base the home office in Salt Lake City and start hiring people? I've never wanted a home office for two reasons. One, I won't go into one. I'm super introverted. I like working from home. I will socialize like when I come out and choose to, but like I won't go into an office. And two, it just limits our talent pool incredibly if we're limited to hiring within like the Salt Lake City or, you know, Northern Utah kind of area. So we've always been virtual. And of course, when the pandemic hit, we were like, oh, sweet. We don't have to, we didn't <laughs> miss a beat, right? We got this Nobody game had down. to figure out, uh-huh, <laughs> we had it down. Um, and it's been great because we have hired several people since the pandemic launched, and they're all superstars and they're all in different areas and states. One of our 
um, team members. Our director of finance is completely nomadic. She lives in a different city like every three months out of the year and just loves to move around. And, you know, you wouldn't be able to do that if we had a home office. So we're really, I'm very happy still with this decision to like keep people remote. How do y'all maintain culture in the midst of all? Because we have an entirely remote team as well. We're we're about seven people now, so we're smaller than y'all. Um, and I'm I'm a nomad. I'm the founder, and I'm a nomad. I live about three months place at least right now. It's a season. It's not the entire yeah. time, but yeah. Uh, so how do you maintain and make sure that you're continually guarding the culture? Because it seems like y'all's. I mean, truly, whether you'll call them this or not, y'all's core values would have to be the heartbeat of what y'all do and make sure that you're guarding because you're such a value-based and principle-based organization. Yeah, it's challenging. The bigger we get, obviously, the harder it's going to be. Like this last offsite, it, we were kind of like, wow, this is the last time that we're going to be able to have this kind of offsite where we rented this huge Airbnb and everyone just hung out in the living room and the kitchen and we did the presentation on the big TV over the fireplace. And it was like, man, if we have you know, 25 people, like we're not going to be able to do it like this anymore. So we do things like we've got a really thriving, obviously Slack channels. We do water cooler Wednesdays and co-work Fridays. Um, there's sort of this policy that if any two people happen to be in the same state at the same time, like anyone else can kind of fly in and co-work. That's been obviously really challenging with COVID. Like I said, we haven't seen each other in person in over almost two, I guess, two years now. Mm. Um, so this last offsite was the first time. But yeah, we're talk we're always talking about how we can get the team together in person or get individual teams together in person in a way that, you know, you got to be budget conscious about it. But it's also really, really important to have that FaceTime. And we recognize that, that is 100% worth spending money on. Gosh, that's so good. Kind of final couple questions. What's the biggest thing you're learning about leadership right now, Melissa? Oh, wow. I don't think I have a lesson to reflect back on, but one of the tensions I think that we're in the middle of right now is how do we grow and still maintain that like really organic culture at our heart? Mm. How do we grow to reach even more people? How would we, you know, expand our business, get into new lines of business? How would we do that and still make sure that like at our heart, is that whole 30 nugget from my CrossFit training blog that like that's still there. And that's a challenge I think that we, I mean, I'm sure all businesses experience that, but it's different if you sell widgets and you just want to sell more widgets, like how can we sell more widgets? And yes, those widgets can help change people's lives and be really, you know, helpful, but, but we are at our heart, like in a media company. So how do we grow and expand that aspect but still stay true to our culture. And that's definitely something we're in the middle of right now. And I'm very proud of how we're going about it. Um, but it's something I'm interested in learning more about over the next year or so. Yeah. Associate with that, y'all have a y'all have a coaching program, correct, that walks people kind of through the whole 30 process. Is that right? So they're not doing it in isolation? Yeah, yeah. We founded our Whole30 Certified Coaching Program in 2017. We have mm -hmm. more than 200 coaches all across the country and some in other countries who guide and lead people through the Whole30. So again, we did a survey a few years back and found that 75% of Whole30ers were doing the program by themselves, not with a spouse or roommates or family members or a church group or CrossFit gym. They were doing it all on their own. And we thought, how do we bring that in-person social support that they're missing to local communities all across the country. And that was where our coaching program started. So 
they have taken the program in directions I never could have anticipated. They do really fun virtual events. They do in-person events. They're one of our coaches has a meal planning company. We have MDs and RDs and psychologists and psychiatrists who are Whole30 certified coaches using the program with their patients. So yeah, that program evolution has been really cool to witness and it's been great for the community. Yeah, no kidding. That's part of our model as a business is we have business owners, people that own and lead a business, uh, coaching other business owners, which we're just, we're really, really pumped about that. We've kind of started that in the last year or so. And one of the things that I've learned in that is like, it's one thing to do the work yourself or to be on your podcast or your platforms talking about how people should lead, operate, run their business and talking about values and things like that. But then it takes on a whole nother magnitude whenever you're like, I'm putting this person that uh, that I've met before, but it's like, I'm not going to be there in their conversation with this customer. And I'm trusting that they're going to advise with the principles and passion and personality and values that we have as a company. And I mean, that is scary as a founder, right? To put your name on someone like that. And so I'd love to know a little bit about kind of uh, how y'all properly equip coaches to make sure that they're on brand and on values with Whole30. Yeah, it is a, it's a challenging dynamic. So I recognized early on that if the program continued to grow, if I were talking to the community members directly, it would be like a game of telephone. The further away we got, the more diluted my message becomes. But if I now have these highly you know, equipped and educated and, you know, fiercely loyal Whole30 certified coaches. Now my method of communication is a lot shorter. I talk to the coaches, coaches talk to the community, and that message stays intact as it gets transferred. So there's obviously an incredibly detailed testing process for coaches with four different tracks. We've created study guides for them. We are in the process of creating an actual training module for coaches. So instead of showing up prepared, we'll lead and guide you. We have a very close community with our coaches. So there are Slack channels. We've got advanced level coaches, folks who have been in the program for more than three years and who really exemplify the spirit and intention of Whole30. We do you know, monthly Zoom calls and newsletters with them and meet the brands and introduce them to our Whole30 approved partners. They really are like an extension of Whole30 HQ in that I will you know, use them for focus groups or ask them questions about business decisions or what do you think of this particular brand? So we have a very close relationship with coaches. And and I like the fact that coaches have their own voice. I don't want them to be pure parrots of the whole 30. I want you to talk about the program in the way that worked best for you and talk about food freedom in a way that maybe I haven't heard before, or but in a way that resonates with your clients. And, and I think that's the value of having coaches is that they're going to come to you with ideas that you never would have thought of that are really good. Um, and then we get to implement that, you know, with them. Gosh, I love it. If someone's listening to this right now and is just really hyped on the fact that they want to do Whole30, and I love that your kind of CTA on everything that I've heard you say is just try it. What, Like, what could yeah. it hurt just to try it? So I love that CTA. But what would be the best kind of step one or place to go? Yeah, so just go to the website, whole30.com. There's a big old button that says, do the Whole30. And if you click that, it will walk you through absolutely everything. There's also a little um, kind of pop-up on the homepage where you can download a Whole30 starter kit. That's another route. So you've got two kind of free routes to go to get you started on our website. 
And then we'll walk you through all the planning and prep. If you want any of the books to kind of lead or guide you, if you want to work with a coach, if you want to sign up for our SMS text message program, you know, where I'll send you a text every day of your whole 30, we have all of these options available, but it's all consolidated right on the website. Awesome. And we'll put all the links to those things in the show notes of this episode. Um, Before we get to the final question, is there anything else that you would point people to and how can they stay in touch with you and follow you with regard to everything that you're doing, Melissa? Yeah, thank you. Um, So I am at Melissa U on Instagram and I launched my own personal website a couple months ago, melissau.com. And that's where you'll hear me talk about things that are definitely tangential to Whole30. So I will talk about food sometimes, but that's where I'm talking about relationships and addiction and recovery and boundaries and self-care. And I just released my like no gift Christmas guide, which I'm kind of famous for every year. So um, you can find me at melissau.com and then on Instagram um, as sort of if you want to hear about some of the other things that I talk about. That's wonderful. Uh, Final question for you. What's the thing that you're most excited about right now? Oh, that's such a good question. I can't, I can't tell you what it is. We have a project. <laughs> oh, no. We have a new project coming out in first quarter 2022. And I can't talk about it until like February. But when I tell you that I have been eating, sleeping, and breathing this project, and I am so pumped about it. It is something really new for Whole30. We've never launched anything like it. I think it's going to open us up to an entirely new uh, kind of conversation. So I can tell you after, but I'm going to swear you to secrecy. <laughs> okay, dang. You are, uh, that is a way to end on a cliffhanger and then maybe we can, <laughs> maybe we can have you back Q1 of 2022 and we can have another conversation at that time talking about, that. talking about the secret project. Well, uh, Melissa, um, couple things. Just thank you, number one, for your authenticity and sharing your story. And then beyond that, thank you for really kind of embodying what it looks like to be a business leader that is driven by just a heart to serve people well with what you've learned and with what you've practiced. I just admire that so much. And this conversation is going to be so helpful for people. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate you reaching out. And it was a great conversation. You obviously did your homework. So thanks for that. Thanks, Melissa. Well, goodness, there's so much gold in that conversation. And I'm just so grateful to Melissa for investing the time and energy to share. I'll tell you, one of the greatest takeaways for me was just the idea that healthy habits with regard to our food and eating patterns and everything else in our life really starts by paying attention right? We have to pay attention to where we are currently, to where we want to be, what's the disparity between the two, and then what are the choices every day that we are making that either align with the person, the man, the woman, the leader that we are called to be, or misalign with that, and how do we make sure we stay on track? I think Melissa's perspective and lifestyle are just so helpful with regard to what it means to practice healthy growth. So Melissa, thank you so much for your time, for your investment, and for being someone that lives what you teach. Y'all, before we go today, many of you probably know that I really don't like email. That's because I think that most email isn't worth it. And so we set out as a team to create one that is. It's an email that's worth your time and worth your energy. Every Wednesday, we send a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. We call it Worth It Wednesday. And if you want to sign up for it, uh, you can click the link that's in the show notes of this episode. We'd love to have you on board for the email that we uh, send out every single week. Y'all, uh, we're grateful for you. We're rooting for you. Remember, we want to see you win. My strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength 
is for service. Let's go, let's go, let's go. 